0: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: Welcome to episode three of a Life in Ruins podcast. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Connor Yohain and David Howe. <laughs> Tonight's guest,
2: Emily Van Alst, is a descendant of the Lakota Sioux Nation and works avidly in public outreach. Although the Lakota and Pawnee are historical enemies, Carlton and Emily have chosen to put aside their tribal differences to deliver our listeners an (laughs) awesome episode.
3: <laughs> Emily got started at Yale University and she is currently a PhD student at Indiana University Bloomington. Her research interests include rock art, gender, indigenous archaeology, public archaeology, indigenous feminism, and ethnography.
1: As a goal of this podcast is to provide our listeners with multifaceted approaches to archaeology, we are super excited to talk with Emily tonight. So let's count some coup and get this episode started.
3: Oh my God. Well, hello, Emily, and thanks for being on the podcast. Um, Just to start off, could you talk about your kind of early childhood and or at least just give us the basic introduction of who you are and what you do? Uh,
0: Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. So my sort of background, I am a Ph.D. student at Indiana University um, where I'm working on uh, my Ph.D. in archaeology. My focus is on Indigenous women's sort of interaction and participation in the creation of rock art on the Northern Plains, so present-day South Dakota, Montana, and Wyoming. Um, A little bit of background about myself. Um, I grew up in northern Maine um, in a small town called Bridgewater. There was about 450 people growing up in my town. And then I moved to Connecticut when um, I was in middle school because my dad decided to pursue a Ph.D. Um, in comp and cultural studies at UConn. So I normally call myself a suburban Indian because <laughs> I didn't really grow up on the res and I didn't really grow up in a city, so I can't consider myself an urban Indian, but I definitely consider myself a suburban Indian since I kind of grew up in the suburbs of Connecticut until I went to college. So growing up in Maine, I was the only Native kid in my class, um, and that was pretty much the deal for middle school and high school. And it was kind of a weird experience because anytime we talked about native issues, it was like everyone turned and looked at me, whatever classroom it was. And so, yeah, growing up in a small town and being the only native person could, was definitely difficult growing up, um, but it kind of gave me the tools to talk about native issues, which is what I'm really passionate about today.
1: And you are a descendant of the Lakota Nation, not a tribal citizen, correct?
0: Correct. I am not enrolled, um, but I do uh, my ceremonies with my family on Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in Porcupine, South Dakota. So
2: for someone who's non-native, could you kind of explain like what the difference between what you just said is?
0: So being enrolled means that um, you're a citizen of that tribal nation um, versus being unenrolled. Um, So People who are enrolled or unenrolled both have sort of heritage and have families and are part of Native communities. But enrollment basically means you're a citizen, and it may come with um, an enrollment card, so a tribal ID, which I don't have since I'm not enrolled. Um, But that doesn't mean that I don't have that connection to that community.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. And that brings up a, a really interesting point, um, especially in the modern context of talking about indigenous issues. Because, like, I didn't know that you weren't enrolled um, just because of how active and, per- and like how much you participate in Lakota culture and 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 stuff. And so, there's kind of like this. It's, I wouldn't say it's a tiered system because that would rank people, but there's des- definitely kind of like three groups of people that claim themselves to be. Indigenous and you have your enrolled members um, who get the tribal ID card and they uh, as well has they can participate directly within the nation like voting, um, especially in right. my case, I'm enrolled, so I get a vote, which is great and, I'll, you know, participate. And then you have the descendants who are actively engaged in the community, there might be a blood quantum uh, mm-hmm. requirement that, that prohibits people from being like tribally enrolled, but they still participate in active members. And then you have like this third group, which I like to call the, uh, and this, this comes from a Charlie Hill. Uh, he's a, he's a native American comedian, what he calls the uh, pretendians or the genericies, <laughs> people that <laughs> people, especially on the East coast who have, who claim to have native heritage, through like some distant grandmother who always, who's always like nine times out of 10, like, yeah, my great grandmother was a Cherokee princess. And it's like, that's adorable. You have no idea what you're talking about. Um, (laughs) But like, that's, and I, I just want to like mention that, that, you know, even though you might not be enrolled, you're definitely a member of, of the Lakota nation. And, and like, it's just awesome with the amount of work that you do um, with the nation itself. So just like for our listeners out there that these things, differences do exist, and you shouldn't base your assumptions on somebody claiming native heritage, just on the fact if they're enrolled or not, because we have people like Emily, who are doing amazing work and helping out their nation.
0: Thank you. Yeah, it's an interesting sort of family story. I was telling Carlton about this the other day, but basically when the settlers came out and they were settling, <laughs> uh, my family left with Sitting Bull up to Canada. And when Sitting Bull came, decided to go back down to the United States, my family apparently decided not to do that. They didn't want to go back and deal with the government. So they stayed in Canada for a couple generations um, and then they came down through Michigan. And that's when one of my ancestors um, married a fur trapper with the last name Van Alst. And that's how I have that last name. Um, mm. And so, yeah. And then my dad grew up in Chicago, total urban Indian. Um, and so it's not necessarily that my family's been removed. It's just like they weren't there when they decided to, you know, do the census and uh, put down all the the Native people on the rolls, essentially. And so that is technically why I'm not enrolled. Um, is because I was never on, my family wasn't on the rolls. Um, they decided to to move and go away from that. So it's interesting, sort of, the choices that Native people have made um, and our ancestors have made in the past to sort of resist colonialism. And so people have really interesting family stories when it comes to to that. And it has some, obviously, some real... Implications today, and so yeah, there are these different groups of Native people who have had very um, interesting and different experiences.
1: So we have a a somewhat similar thing that goes on with the Pawnee Nation is that the Pawnees that decided not to move um, from Nebraska to Oklahoma were not—they're not included on the rolls. Like they were allowed to stay, Mm -hmm. but they were—you know—they had to give up all claims to being basically like the Pawnee tribe itself so there's a bunch of them running around Nebraska who have no I mean they're, they're mm. basically cut off there's really no yeah. they don't have any connection anymore and that's funny that you say that your last name comes from a French trapper because that's where my last name comes from is also a French trapper
0: oh of course because yeah. that's how people got last names back in the day
1: <laughs> exactly I <was laughs> like a great-grandmother um she After my great-grandfather died, she'd remarried a French trapper with the last name Gauvet. They never had kids, but during the renaming act, her name was already Govey, so they just named all the kids uh, and which is the English is Gover. So that's how that that came about.
0: Wow, that's cool.
3: Oh, that's super interesting. Um, so you said that your uh, father decided to get a PhD in, was it cultural? Sorry, I, I missed.
0: Comp- comparative Literature and Cultural Studies.
3: Dang. Oh, very cool. So yeah. That's a, that seems like a very interesting kind of major, something to study. Um, so did you have any really early, is that kind of related to anthropology or is there, did you have any early interactions with anthropology um, kind of through that?
0: Yeah. Um, my dad went back to school when I was probably like 11. Um, and so some of my earliest memories is him going back to college um, and education being very, very important in our house. Um, and so because his undergrad was actually in behavioral sciences, he was reading a lot of psych and sociology, but he was also reading a lot of anthropology. And so it's interesting when I, when I got to college and I started taking anthro theory classes, you know, I was kind of familiar with, you know, Durkheim and Walter Benjamin because dad had been reading that when I was younger. And so my dad's focus is really, um, the representation of Native people in film and television is one of his main focuses, as, lo- um, as well as Native literature. Um, and so, you know, growing up, we I read a lot of Native books. We watched a lot of movies where Native people were represented, sometimes not in the best ways, a.k.a. Westerns. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was interesting you know being in that sort of environment that we my family was constantly reading and watching movies and doing and doing those sort of academic things um and looking at things in a very academic lens um and so when i got to college um i tried like 12 different majors um and i finally decided with anthropology because um i was very interested in how native people represented themselves and i think that's kind of why i've moved into really looking at rock art um, as part of my dissertation
1: that's super cool so what is rock art
0: what is rock art uh, rock art for my definition is human-made um, paintings or and/or carvings on a rock surface at the most basic sort of scientific level but I would say that it also has a lot of meaning and this sort of images we see are, are, could be, could be symbolic. They don't necessarily have to be, but there's definitely human meaning onto those images.
2: So for the audience listening, what would you say is like, just quickly the difference between rock art and cave art, or are they the same thing?
0: They can be the same thing. Okay. Um, Sometimes though we see, especially in Northern Plains, rock art. um, It's not necessarily um, rock art that is painted or carved in a cave it can be on like a butte or it can even be um on a stone that's just been left like on the plains so it doesn't necessarily gotcha. have to be within a cave and then there's um art though that is pretty common um sort of across the world people have the tendency to create art in more isolated rock art anyway in more isolated areas on the landscape
1: so like just a quick question how is the um Lakota Nation received um, your research and the work that you do, because like, as you're well aware, um, archaeology in the field of anthropology itself within um, indigenous communities is not highly regarded. I think a lot of that kind of goes back to um, that book, Red Earth, White Lies. Um, okay. I forget the author off the top of my head, which I'm ashamed of because he worked here at CU Boulder.
0: It's Vine Deloria Jr. Yeah,
1: Vine Deloria Jr. That's it. Um, what a name! Wow,
0: wow Carlton, I can't I believe know. you don't remember that.
1: I know. I get so much. I get so much for it over at NARF when they ask about. Hey, have you read Vine Deloria's work? I'm like, yes, Narf? I have. Uh, yeah, NARF, the Native American Rights Fund. It's uh, they're located. Their headquarters is right next to the anthropology yeah. building here at uh, Boulder. I have a couple cousins that work there. Um, oh, okay. I'd never heard of that one. Yeah, um, not many people do unless uh, (laughs) the government's being sued. But uh, so, yeah, how (laughs) so how has how has Lakota Nation like uh, accepted your work? Do they know about it? Like, yeah, how's it being received?
0: So my family, which is probably about 60 people altogether, they know about it and they're very excited. They they've been practicing this ceremony called the Elk Dance for um, since 2015 at this point. Um, And I was kind of randomly flipping through a book one day and I was looking at some rock art images from the Black Hills region in South Dakota. And I realized that the images I was looking at looked like the ceremony that my family performs and that I have been a part of. Um, And so I took the book to them and I was like, oh my God, you guys, look at this. Like, this is what we do. And they were like, oh my God, we had no idea that, our ancestors made this rock art there's sort of this disconnect unfortunately between rock art and and Lakota people right now and that's not to say that's everyone of the Lakota nation but for my family we weren't aware of that rock art existing and so they're really excited to see where my work takes me and I and I plan on taking them to rock art sites for my dissertation to get their interpretation of the rock art Rock art in the Northern Plain has the tendency to be sort of interpreted through a very Western, um, sometimes art historical lens, which I don't think really gives rock art the real interpretation that it needs. Because if Native people created it, why wouldn't Native people then interpret it? And that's not to say that Native contemporary Native people have been doing the exact same thing as Native ancestors, but there's probably some connections. And we know about those connections as Native people. So it's see, my family... Seems to be very excited about it. They were a little hesitant when I told them that I wanted to be an archaeologist. They were like, oh, God, archaeologists and anthropologists are the worst. And I'm like, yes, I know. (laughs) But as a Native person, I hope that we can sort of start to change that narrative. And I currently, I think Lakota people are starting to understand that that relationship could potentially be repaired, um, which I'm excited about. So currently I'm working on getting my IRB um, approved. With the Oglala Lakota Nation, and so um, I think that will allow me to do, or maybe potentially talk to more people about the work that I'm doing. What's an IRB? An institutional review board is what it's called, but basically, um, do you want the real version or like my version of an IRB? Uh, let's
1: go uh, with, let's your go version, with I guess. yeah, your version for sure.
0: Um, can I swear on the podcast? Oh, please. Why? We already have
1: the explicit. Yeah. We got the first on yes! tech on uh, Podnet, So like we're, we're, we're going to hold on to that trophy as much as we can. Hell so just yeah. like, yeah, just like keep the F words to eliminate to a limit. Okay. Yeah. We, we, okay. we only get so many of those for podcasts.
0: Well, let's be real. The IRB is a way for Indiana university to save its ass in case of a lawsuit is essentially what an IRB does, but it allows me as a researcher who's part of Indiana University to go and interview people and IU doesn't have to worry about my tribe potentially gotcha suing them. Yeah.
2: And that's She's pretty common
3: wrongful, at most universities, yeah. right? In.
0: Oh yeah, definitely. I think every university has, has an IRB at this point for any sort of scientific research.
1: Now you brought something up that like always, I want to say grinds my gears, but gets me all heated is like the fact that indigenous people nations haven't adopted anthropology or archaeology as like a means of interpretation because they see it as like racist science and I always Mm -hmm. think to myself it's like well it wasn't archaeologists that wrote the treaties those were lawyers and we have plenty of attorneys (laughs) now Um, it wasn't doctors like IHS doctors who did the forced sterilization without anyone's knowing but we have people that work in the health health industry and who are nurses and doctors and that like throughout the course of like indigenous history any sort of profession or science was used against indigenous people and like we've seen right. throughout the decades indigenous people getting involved in those industries in order to help their nations and then but for some reason like anthropology and archaeology has always been kept at a distance like no that is evil that's wrong right and it's like if you put more people like yourself emily like in these positions like you can reframe the narrative and bring back a native voice to it and so it's one of those things that always just trying to you know drives me nuts, especially with the Pawnees having some pretty famous lawyers who still are on the bad bandwagon of like hating anthropology and archaeology. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it comes from Vine Deloria again. He that wrote that book, uh, Red Earth, White Lies, and you know it could have been used as a vehicle for bringing Native people into the field, but instead it was like really strongly against it. And it's still like that book was written early 2000s or late 90s and, it, and it's still yeah. a very dominant paradigm in the heads of the, of the educated um, indigenous and it's it's just infuriating. It's like, you know, you guys still go to Western hospitals in order to help, like that's not indigenous medicine, but like you, you understand the value that it has. So it's, it's reframing anthropology. And I think like me and you, especially Emily, are part of this generation of indigenous people that are, are really investigating archeology span and anthropology and turning it on its head. Like, no, 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 we need to have our own voice. We need to start controlling the narrative or having a big part to play. And I think we are starting to see like kind of the fruits of a lot of that with larger tribal historic preservation offices that have, you know, indigenous, um, anthropology majors and, you know, linguists Mm -hmm. are coming out like anthropology is now providing a service that I'm really hoping um, continues to be a positive one.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. It's it's fantastic what is going on in Indian country today. I think that there's a there's very few native anthropologists and archaeologists. But I think that you're right. It's this next generation that's really going to push it the
3: next step. Well, um, you know, going on, going off of that, we're going to take our first break, but we'll come back to this conversation, um, shortly. So thank you. Welcome back to episode three of a life in the ruins podcast. Um, we are talking with Emily van Alst, um, and to kind of start the section off, um, I wanted to, I had a question earlier, um, but you guys were having such a great conversation. I didn't want to interrupt it at, at all. Um, but do you think that, um, native communities are less are hesitant to interpret rock art or be, be involved with the interpretation of rock art because they've been, um, removed from their homelands? Or do you think there's some sort of, because they don't live in the same areas anymore, that there's differences and it might affect, you know, how they feel about rock art these days?
0: Definitely. I think that part of it too, is that, um, Native communities, like I was talking about with my own community, is just unaware of that rock art, and and for my home community, you know, the rock art that of that ceremony that we still perform is only you know a hundred miles north, so it's not that far away, but it's far enough away that you know they weren't we weren't aware of it, um, and so I think that for communities that have been mo- forcibly removed very far away, I think about the Miami of Indiana who were moved from Indiana to Oklahoma which is you know thousands of miles away. Um, I think mm-hmm. that, that that definitely has an effect on how people may, may not even know about the rock art when it comes to interpretation. I think that native people definitely have a particular perspective and can have a particular perspective on rock art. You know, rock art is different for every single tribe. I think there's this idea that maybe native people have a connection but they see it the same as anthropologists, which is this very like uh, art historical Western approach. It's just images. Well, for a lot of Native folks, um, rock art can be it can be alive. Um, it can be their ancestors talking to them. Um, there's different cultural protocols when it comes to interacting with rock art. For example, the Dinwoody tradition that you see a lot of in Wyoming um, is Shoshonean, and you're some, one of the cultural protocols is you're not allowed to point at the rock art because you are potentially inviting spirits, um, to talk to you. That's and cool. It, yeah, so it's important to kind of remember those cultural protocols. Um, I know for the Lakota, um, we're not allowed to have certain animals at rock art sites like dogs, um, cause they have their own medicine, um, that would interact, like could potentially interact with the rock art medicines. So, yeah, rock art isn't just an image that you can look at, but it it can be alive and it can have meaning and it can you can interact with it in a very different way as a native person than if you're just going and looking at an image on a rock.
3: And it can be inter- interpreted in different ways, right? You yeah, t- to different people and mean different things.
1: Can I say something about it real quick? Because like, yeah. <laughs> I, I've I, the one of the most craziest experiences I've ever had with a member of the public was actually looking at Denwetti rock art. Okay. It oh was boy. yeah, oh my god. It was it was amazing. So it was like the Eclipse of 2017, White River Indian Reservation, which is Shoshone, yep. and uh the Arapaho are just kind of chilling there. And so like <laughs> I went I went up with my co- I went up my, with my cousins who are who are Shoshone and I used to live in White River and they're like, "Hey, come out." So we did. And because of an archaeologist, hey, do you want to go see the rock art? And it, it had been a while since I'd seen it. Um so I was like, "Yeah, sure." Um so we went up to go see the Denwoodie rock art and we we picked up Cause the trail to get there, if you don't have a four by four, kind of sucks. So we picked up a couple, uh, people from Las Vegas and we were talking to them and we were like, Oh, my, my cousin was like, Oh, Carlton's an archeologist. I'm like, Oh my God, this is great. We can talk about it. So we're looking at the rock art and I, and I shit you not, this person was like, well, you, like I read this, this article about rock art and, uh, you know, where you get these, these red stains from. And I was like, Oh, like, please do tell. <laughs> and, oh, and God. to sum it up, the story was that like, Ancient Great Basin Indians would paint the butts of sheep red and where the sheep sat down or pressed up against the rock art. Like that's what the impression was, was like sheep butt paint. And I I, I, (laughs) uh, dude, yes, I I, I was, I sat there and my cousin looked at me like, oh, weird." he's like, what? And I was like, (laughs) I would really love to see the article. But like, to my knowledge, sheep, bighorn sheep were never domesticated. So like, I don't know how they would do that. And like a lot of these red impressions are like high up. So unless they put a sheep on a ladder and like bulldoze styled a sheep's ass into the rock <laughs> face, like I don't see how this happened. And it so was, this, just, was and like, I, this was like, yeah, dude. This is this is like two, three years ago. And I was just sitting there and I got in the car with my cousin. He was like, What the fuck are those white people talking about? And I was like, I had no idea, Sonny. Like that, that's oh, that's God. nope, just nope. But yeah, so yeah, eagle rock art. It's great. Go see it.
3: So it's, that's like the equivalent yeah. of like photocopying like a Ram's button <laughs> and then yeah. turning that off. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Pretty much. Yeah. Just, yeah. Just, yeah, okay.
0: yeah. That's definitely <laughs> how you interpret that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. There, I mean, people just have this weird idea, like because they don't, nobody really knows what rock art is. People have just made up the craziest stuff when it comes to inter- their interpretation and everyone thinks that they get an interpretation especially when it comes to Native American rock art which is just bullshit at this point I'm not I'm not here for it so this is why I want to bring Native people to rock art sites to actually interpret their ancestors images so
1: I mean to be honest like I wasn't a huge fan of rock art um and I think that just comes from my like Wyoming um Mm, upbringing with you know like Bob Kelly Mm-hmm. and uh and I but like Bob at this year game
2: art, or rock
1: art. no yeah yeah absolutely but like you you, it's like it's a it, it's really interpretive to understand these things and like that's something that sure you know they just don't really necessarily like totally deal with but like when i went to Plains conference in san antonio and i was really bummed that you and mac weren't there emily i know that the, our, our our presentation was on lower pecos rock art and when i first sat down for this presentation i was just like oh here we go <laughs> But like it was f- fascinating that she was able to tie in this Lower Pecos rock art with Aztec with the Aztec origin story and like the belief yeah. system. And I was I was totally sold. I was like, oh my god, like this is actually legit.
0: When I found out that Carolyn Boyd was giving that presentation, I like cried. I was like, oh my god, are you kidding me? Why am I missing this? Carolyn Boyd is huge in North American rock art. Like the work she does is just impeccable. It it was
1: phenomenal. Like I was totally bought in and I was sitting next to Dr. Marcel Kornfeld and like that whole experience itself was just amazing. And I totally gained this uh, appreciation for rock art and my buddy, Devin Pettigrew, who's my lab mate, also got bought in and almost every day now like he Wait, he's in a
2: I've never up? heard the term lab mate that's so <laughs> lab mate
1: like, like well he's, he's my office he's in my office he's one of he's yeah. one of Doug's other students and like we've been doing this class in in Pawnee archaeology and like Devin has totally immersed himself in pawnee mythology and belief systems and rock art and it compares it with like the Dingan speaker suit this Dingan suin am I saying that right? Like the Oto Osage.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I know what you're talking about. I don't know how to
1: pronounce it either. Yeah, that group of Suen speakers and like, and he's every, it's, it's rainbows all day with him, rainbow serpents, rainbows, arrows, (laughs) lightning. And it's just like, Devin, that's great. I got to work on something else, but like, it's just been absolutely phenomenal. And like that, and I've gained a huge appreciation for your research and the way that you're conducting it just just kind of through these experiences within the last year of like these things actually matter mm-hmm. to contemporary Indigenous people because there's they actually do tell a narrative. They're not yeah. just, you know, these aren't doodles.
0: Right, exactly. And I think that the where that comes from is in the sort of nineteen sixties and seventies, everyone thought that people were just like getting high on whatever drugs and like creating rock art and it was shamanism. And I'm like, oh my God, no. Um, And unfortunately, some of that that narrative has sort of spilled over into, you know, contemporary rock art research. Um, My hope is that this new generation, including myself, will sort of really think about cultural context when it comes to rock art and not just what we think Native or ancestors potentially were just doing. But yeah, it's rock art has just been seen as like this mysterious, like image of the past or whatever and. I, I think that rock art can be really important and really help us sort of construct this narrative of the past that archaeologists are really interested
3: in. And kind of building off of that. Um, so could you define what indigenous archaeology is? And, you know, as you were mentioning before, um, you know, how how can that be beneficial to archaeology or anthropology kind of going forward in the, in the future?
0: So I like to use um, Joe Watkins' definition of indigenous archaeology, with which is uh, an archaeology that is with, by, and for indigenous people. Joe is probably, I guess, grandfather at this point of indigenous archaeology, was one of the first indigenous archaeologists to write about what indigenous ar- archaeology could be. And so indigenous archaeology is not just... A theory, but I think it it really is about method and praxis, which is including Indigenous voices and Indigenous communities. For me, that includes at the very first step of an archaeological project, whether that be an academic one or a cultural resource management project. I think Native people need to be consulted at the very first step, and not just consulted as in, like, oh, we asked a few Native people um, about you know, this pipeline project or potentially this research, but actually including indigenous folks throughout the entire process of whatever project that might be.
3: And historically they've been like, like historically they've been left out of those conversations, exactly. no matter what it was like CRM, you know, yeah. academic research.
0: Yeah. I mean, native people haven't really started to be a part of the, the conversations and part of projects and probably until the nineties really and so things have been moving in a better direction, um, and that relationship is starting to be healed between archaeologists and, and Native people. But I think there's a, there's a lot more to go. Um, and I think one of the main things for Indigenous archaeology is having Native people be archaeologists. It's not just archaeologists and then Native people, the sort of mentality of being, you know, two different groups. But I think that there are people who exist in this sort of in-between, like me, like Carlton, um, like a few other indigenous archaeologists, and I think that's going to be really the key, like next step in indigenous archaeology is having more native archaeologists, um, and include and and not just having consultation but having engagement. I was talking to a First Nations archaeologist, and he was like, "Consultation. People say they've consulted native people. They've lied and said they consulted native people, but really engagement and and including native voices and native communities." every step of the way.
1: And that's that's a huge distinguishing factor is like that dichotomy between consultation and collaboration. Mm-hmm. Like those are two very different models for for engaging Indigenous communities because, I mean, just to sum it up, uh, consultation just means you show up, you can show up to a tribal meeting, say, hey, this is what I want to do and this is what I found. Like, do you guys support it or do you guys want anything to do with it? And the tribe can say yes or no. And regardless of what they say, the researcher can just do what they want. But they said, well, I've consulted, like I've I've consulted. And But collaboration is a completely different method of like Indigenous people are there from start to finish and help and contribute two conclusions rather than just getting approval um and i think that's a
3: difference in like in the power that that the the people have at the table
1: right. absolutely um i'm part of a project with mesa verde right now that's under a collaboration model um and the tribes when we reached out to them were like really confused um because they were like all right so what what's the game plan we're like no you're going to be part of the game plan and they were like what do you mean we're part of the game plan like no you're going to be with us from beginning to end you're going to have this whole process is going to be with you guys helping us (laughs) to figure this problem out and they were they were just confused and then once they got over the shock they were totally excited about it
2: you said Uh, consultated
1: (laughs) oh my god (laughs) consulted sorry
0: Hey, I knew what you meant, though, so it's fine.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's that PhD education right there. It's doing you real well. (laughs) It's, yep, it's the end of the semester. Yeah, fair. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I'm actually working on a project. I fly out Saturday with Salish Kootenai College. We're trying to get a rock art field school um, off the ground. And so we have two uh, Native faculty that we're going to be working with. And so, um, and we're also meeting with the Salish Kootenai Cultural Committee, as well, while we're there, and so it'll be very much collaborative, and it won't just be us consulting and then doing whatever we we want as Indiana University researchers. So, um, I think that a lot of people are are starting to do the more collaborative engagement method, not just consultation.
1: What's the uh, U.S. tribal designation for the Salish? Um,
0: uh, what do you mean, like federal? Like, They're wh- federally yeah. recognized.
1: Yeah, yeah they're I mean, like, recognized. is I mean, like, is that the name they call themselves, or is that like the name that's in the treaties?
0: Um, I'm not. It's the Flathead Indian Reservation. So Salish Kootenai College is on the Flathead Reservation, and it's the Interior Salish and the Kootenai. So it's two different tribes.
1: Okay, gotcha. Yeah. I just didn't know if it was like something like you know, there's the federal designation, which is Pawnee, and then there's what the Pawnee call themselves. So I didn't know if it was like. One of one of those aspects of of uh, what, yeah. Anyways.
0: Yeah, I think. And where they, where are
3: these tribes located? Sorry. I didn't. Oh, they're <laughs> in... nations, Connor. Nations. Nations. Sorry, <laughs> nations. No, I thank you for correcting me. I appreciate that. <laughs>
0: um, they are in northern um, Montana, northwest Montana, so about an hour north of Missoula, Montana, which is where University of Montana is.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Very cool. Yeah. Dope. Uh, well, I saw on your uh, your CV when we were talking about it that you're into um, gender and feminist archaeology. Um, let's. I was gonna ask the question. How does rock art kind of inform our interpretations of gender in the past? That's something that I don't think like the public is much aware of. You know. Dude,
1: I'm not even aware of it.
0: <laughs> um, I will say this as a caveat: it is really hard to understand. Gender from rock art, right? Okay. Like you talked about how rock art is incredibly interpretive um, and uh, and very subjective, um, and so it's hard to figure out exactly how gender plays into into rock art. But if I if we think about Meg Conkey's work, who's she's well known for rock art research um, sure. pale- in Paleolithic mm-hmm. France, um, as well as feminist uh, archaeology. But rock art's very much been interpreted by men. And so it's just sort of this inherent bias of, oh yeah, men must have created these hunting scenes because they're trying to get power for hunting. Well, we don't 100% know that. Meg Conkey argues, we will never truly know exactly what people were thinking when they were creating these images and what those images mean. Um, But for me, I'm looking more at historic slash proto-historic time frame for rock art and so i can use the ethnographic record as a way to interpret the past not to say that the ethnographic record here in the in north america isn't riddled with male bias um
1: tyranny of the testes
0: so uh (laughs) yeah oh my god that's a new one i haven't heard that one either (laughs) It's great though. Uh, I can't.
1: I can't get credit. I I read it in like a a primatology book or something that looked at chip behavior, and yeah. So yeah. Anyways, tyranny of the testes. Tyranny (laughs) of the testes.
0: Primatology book. Wow. All right. Um, But yeah. So my hope is that you know because native women have been largely ignored in the ethnographic record as well as the archaeological one. My hope is to. Um, talk to Lakota women who who and other Native women potentially about the rock art. Linnea Sunstrom has done a lot of work with looking at gender and rock art and and using the ethnographic record to sort of interpret rock art and and then she has figured out that Native women potentially created some of these images that we're seeing. So
3: yeah, um,
0: it is incredibly hard to do. Um, I didn't realize how hard it was until I got to grad school. <laughs> and was like oh boy i have just wow this is going to be tough but i think that it can be doable depending on the time frame that you're working in
3: cool very, very yeah, cool very cool yeah so um at, at this point we're going to go to our second break um we're so gonna, we'll see us on gonna, the other side yeah right. we're going to consultate with uh, emily some more <laughs> <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> well thank you listeners for making it through the first and second sessions and coming out on the Third session of this podcast, um, we are talking with Emily Van Als, and this is episode three. Um, so to start it off, you had mentioned this term ethnographic record. So could you briefly explain, you know, kind of what that is?
0: So the ethnographic record, wow, I use it so much as a term that I don't even know I can define it. Um, I guess I would define it as basically... <laughs>
3: Like Ethnogra- maybe like the
2: modern, observed, like,
3: yeah. like that's where as
2: far as I can get with words with that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, I guess interviews and inf- information from Native people that was recorded um, in the late 1800s, early 1900s um, is sort of the area that I'm focused on within the ethnographic record. I mean, any sort of ethnography that's been recorded or any interviews, I would say, um, which is essentially what ethnography is, it can also be participant observation. So being part of a community and writing about that community, um, I think all can include can be included in the ethnographic record.
3: So it's like this broad term that's like um, basically information observed or participated in about Native communities that's ultimately published that we as archaeologists and anthropologists you can use to study things
0: exactly that's a much better (laughs) much better definition than mine
3: (laughs) no it's a it's okay i i had if i kind of put you on the spot so
0: it's okay
1: so Uh, i'm I'm
3: curious about your research
1: that you do in the northern plains and looking at rock art is can the rock art be dated are there dates associated with it Wait, uh, hold
2: up. There's an ice cream truck outside my house right now and I'm really psyched.
1: Sorry. Thanks. Thanks for that. Okay, moving on.
2: Okay, it's gone. We're good to go. Sorry. Oh
0: my god. Oh so my
1: god. rock art sites. Can they be dated? Are they dated? What are we dealing with here in terms of time?
0: So rock art is really hard to date on the, on the Northern Plains because the erosion is really bad as well as preservation efforts. Um, uranium ne- mining is also a real issue. And so a lot of rock art, um, unfortunately, has been destroyed because of natural resource extraction um, out west. But if you have pictographs, which is painted rock art, you can date the organic material that was potentially used. So um, red and yellow um, pigment slash ochre um, was used a lot on the plains. Um, So if you have that, you can potentially date that. But it's also important to keep in mind that Native folks might not want um, you taking a tiny piece of that pigment Um, Because it might interrupt the sort of relationship that the rock art has with the sort of larger landscape. Um, But that's one way that you can that you can date. You can also use the ethnographic record to date things. So the ceremony that I was talking about that's been depicted in rock art, that was probably created in the 1700s, potentially a little bit earlier than that. But those are the sort of the main the two main methods of dating
3: rock art on the plains. You can do like relative dating too, which is like you so yeah. you'd date associated features or something, which is, you know, might be a harder way to tie those together.
0: Yeah, it can be really hard because when it comes to rock art, a lot of Native folks, well, we don't, Native ancestors, potentially were creating different um they're called different episodes. So like there might be one image and then like a hundred years later someone else might come along and create another image. Um, we sort of see potentially people going back to the same rock art site over and over again. Um, and it's called superimposition where you have different rock art traditions that are all in one area. Um, and so it can be really hard to figure out when each image was created and how they interact. And so, and, and then if you have associated features or associated artifacts, how can you figure out what image goes with what artifact? It can be really difficult.
1: So why the 1700s in particular?
0: Um, I think 1700s because they did some interviews with some Lakota and Cheyenne people, and that's when they would have been on the, on the Northern Plains and could potentially be been doing certain ceremonies. That's not 100% certain, but that's how those petroglyphs have been interpreted.
1: So that's about the same time as the uh, great Siouan Empire invasion of the plains,
3: right?
0: <laughs> you could call it that. Is that commonly that
3: you... referred to as that? Is that...
0: <laughs> it is Sir Carlton, apparently.
3: <laughs> in, in Pawnee
1: and Ericara circles, that's what we call it.
0: Well, I mean, you know. I wouldn't call it an invasion. Just, you know, we just moved out there. It's fine.
1: Started killing the locals. Yep. Yeah. <sighs> well, you know,
0: this it's fine now, right, Carlton? We're best friends, so.
1: Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> we're
0: not we're not enemies any longer.
1: Nope. <laughs> nope.
0: No. <laughs> we're not bitter about what happened in the past. Nope. <laughs> nope.
3: It
1: was 100 years ago. It's
3: fine
0: it's fine Hundred years time, time heals nothing.
3: everything that's what I hear yeah, just, <laughs> exactly yeah, it, just, it just took time just a yeah.
0: hundred years <laughs> few generations it's fine mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah uh, moving away from that um, I'm just
3: <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> oh boy
1: it seems um, like those
3: differences have really been resolved
1: yeah <laughs> It was, you know, it's like one of those things you watch Dances with Wolves and like, you know, oh the Pawnee's yes. just bitch and moan about the Pawnee scene like all day. Oh, yeah. We uh, we skip that part in our household.
0: Oh, I love Dances
1: with Wolves, though.
0: It's so good. I bet good. you
1: do. I bet you do.
0: <laughs> Best movie ever.
3: <laughs> Speaking of Which representation, are things... things right now? <laughs> I have no idea.
2: i have no idea what you guys are joking about
1: oh my god (laughs) no there's this scene in dances with wolves when the pawnees do like a early morning raid and just get like their asses handed to them it's like a a pretty pivotal part in that whole in that whole movie you know there's there's inaccuracies but that's just expected with hollywood
0: oh yeah i mean that movie the reason i like that movie is because they had albert Whitehat translate all the lakota And so the, like, the scenes where they're speaking Lakota, which is the majority of the scenes, which I think is really awesome, are in, like, the Lakota's correct. And so you're actually hearing the language, which is really awesome. Um, But it's also very much like the white savior complex. And at the very end of the, the movie, like, the Lakota are portrayed in a very particular way, as is the Pawnee. And so you know it's very much like a western sort of movie and the very end they talk about how all the native people like like died off and there's no longer any native people which we know is not true um so it's very 90s white savior complex i mean pocahontas came out two years after that movie and so that was that was the narrative of the 90s when it came to native people in film
1: well the guy so. that plays ten bears in that film, Floyd Crow Westerman, he's he's Sue, yeah. isn't he? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah.
1: Yeah. He wrote a great song called Custer Died for Your Sins. It's, love it.
2: Let me ask the real question though. Was West Duty in that movie? I think so. He yes, was. he plays he the Pawnee.
1: Okay. The Pawnees don't even gotcha. speak Pawnee. They speak fucking Arikara. Like, it's oh like, god. yeah, it's it's not even like, yeah, I can understand that. But like, yeah, I mean, the Arikara are northern cousins who like to pretend like they're not Pawnees. But like, their language is <laughs> is different. Um, and so, if there's any Arikara listens out there, it's like, calm down. Um, <laughs> oh my
0: god. But yeah, West Duty plays the like very angry. Pawnee person in the w- Pawnee warrior, or whatever, in okay. the uh, in the uh, in Dances of Wolves,
1: yeah. And he's Cherokee out of all, yeah. He's he was, Cherokee. you know, yeah, it's a he's whole He's just thing.
2: always in the, I mean, he's in what is yes. the other one? Uh, uh, Last of the Mohicans, he's in that one, yep.
1: All over the See, place. There's there's a short list of people that uh, get I figured for it's these not things. really a deep bench, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's it's like the same guys, but like for um. What the hell was it with Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio? Revenant. Um, Revenant. Revenant. Yeah, he they wasn't brought. In yeah, well, he wasn't, but um, they actually brought out um, lang- uh, Pawnee language coaches for that one.
0: From um, IU, so actually, actually.
1: Yeah, so oh, they cool. did that. Yeah, I had, a, oh, I had cool. a relative that was a part of it. And uh, so there was, a, there was a whole. That was pretty cool. And then we adopted Leo into the tribe because that's how it goes. So, you know, the Southwesterners <laughs> can go fuck themselves with uh, Johnny Depp. We got Leo, boy. We got Leo. Boy. Really <laughs> And apparently, there's a rumor that Jason Momoa might have a Pawnee grandmother, great grandmother, and we're trying to verify it. Because if we could bring him in, like I would be so fucking happy.
2: You're trying to get him on this podcast,
1: dude. I would fucking love to have him. I mean, geez, like we 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 could do it. Gotcha,
3: yeah, Yeah, Jason Momoa, you're out there and listening to our podcast. (laughs) We want you.
0: Yes, get Jason Momoa, that beautiful man.
1: Oh my God! Yeah, it was it was great because like on the on the Pawnee Facebook chats, they're like, "How do we tell if he's uh, if he's Pawnee or not?" And everyone's like, "Have him take off his shirt," and we're just like, "All right."
0: Oh my God! With some grandma on your Pawnee chat. Oh, pit? all of like, all of
1: the women, the women were going nuts. they were just like, "Oh yeah, we'll take him." Like, who cares? We God. don't even need verification. If he wants to say it, we'll let him in. We'll let him in. <laughs> we'll, <laughs> we'll do a ceremony. It'll be fine. We'll do, yeah, we'll just bring him in. That's just perfect it's like yeah we'll take oh. Aquaman we got Aquaman and Leo like yeah <laughs> oh my god yeah, amazing Leo, it's, it's it's been a fun time that is for sure I
2: guess speaking of fun times let's pull back to the uh <laughs> the questions at hand here but um I guess for like I guess Connor and I are non-native archaeologists and obviously non-native I guess layman to the indigenous <laughs> world um you're like white people Yeah, so I'm trying to, you know, (laughs) dodge that one, but yes, as a white person, uh, I guess half white considering on who you talk to, what textbook you read, what can we do to like help contribute and help make indigenous archaeology more like on the forefront or like more, you know, just noticed?
0: I think y'all doing stuff like this, um, like interviewing native folks, um, And and getting our voices out there. I think it's awesome that like you and Connor have Carlton as one of your co-hosts. I think that's really important, like putting Native people on equal footing and equal ground. And I think just like abrasive. Well, Carlton, we all know Carlton is a lot of person, but we love him anyway. Um, but that's yeah, I, you,
1: I mean, that's what she said about me when you first when you first met me when you when uh, at, at Plains, right?
0: Oh, yeah. I was like, oh, my God, he's Pawnee. He's so extra. I can't even deal with
1: it. <laughs> hey, David. Uh, yeah,
2: we're doing a podcast. Yeah, you're on it. OK, cool. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <All right. laughs>
0: Oh.
1: Literally how that conversation went. Oh
0: bad. <laughs> oh um but yeah, I think just you know, if you're teaching a class, like are there indigenous people included on your syllabus? Like, you know, okay. if you don't if you don't know something like that relates to native issues, like contact a native person. And I'm not saying put all of that sort of labor onto a native person, but most native people who are in academia are happy to talk about native issues part of the reason we're doing this whole academia education thing is to you know make people more aware of indigenous issues and so yeah I think just centering native voices elevating native voices um, and being aware of native issues reading up on them I think is really key and actually talking and listening to native people which anthropologists are not very good at.
1: I think it's gotten better though, since the passage yeah. of past, like there's, there's definitely more archaeologists and anthropologists that are like, in order to get access to these resources, like we need to do the right thing. And I think we've seen like, especially because me and you were both born in like the post NAGPRA era, right? So I guess for maybe some of the older people, they still have some of those resentments. But I mean, yeah. you know, one What's of the NAGPRA? coolest, oh, geez, <laughs> the Native American Graves and Repatriations Act of 1990. Um okay. Yep, and that basically said that any um, objects of cultural significance belonging to federal agencies or federally funded museums had to be cataloged and repatriated back to the tribes that they're from. And that was all started because of uh, uh, actually the Sand Creek Massacre here in um, Colorado where a bunch of Cheyenne were civilians were ran down by the cavalry and the Cheyenne civilians were like actually – Protected under the US like they were peaceful termed peaceful Indians and it was like a whole thing. They basically found out that there was a bunch of skeletons sitting in the Smithsonian yeah. um, and it, it created this huge, huge uh, call to action. Um, so and because of that, um, uh, one of the the great things about it is that there's been so much more collaboration between museums and anthropologists with indigenous communities and also indigenous people being involved in museums in anthropology. So, okay. you know
0: yeah and i think also this new generation of archaeologists want just want to do the the right thing right like a law doesn't have to force people to be ethical and be collaborative like they can just you can just do it because you want to do it um and yeah that's sort of to say that you know i think sometimes there's this idea that white people can't do indigenous archaeology and i just don't think that that is true i think as long as non-native people are collaborating with native people i think then you you can be a part of indigenous archaeology
1: all you need okay. is a tonto. oh
0: my god everyone just needs oh. a, side, a native sidekick oh i'm
2: not going to go on the record saying that <laughs> <laughs>
3: this um, podcast mentioned- does not represent the views of David and I <laughs> um,
2: before before we finish you had mentioned earlier something that I had never heard of but like I I, I I know what it is now that you said it but like the white savior like theme of the 90s I didn't really know that was like a wave of you know like zeitgeist in the 90s so like where do you see that going now and like where is that changing
3: um
0: I think in mood uh, I don't know I, I said that in regards to film of films okay. of the 90s. And that's comes from talking to my dad about native representation, um, natives represented in film in the 1990s. But I mean, that the most recent example, I think, would probably be the Avatar movie. Um, okay
1: where wolves in space
0: essentially yeah that's exactly um i wrote a paper in eighth grade i think called dances with pocahontas which was comparing (laughs) dances with wolves pocahontas and avatar (laughs) yes 14 year old me was very proud of that
3: um i think that's gonna be the title of this podcast
0: hell yeah hell yeah it is (laughs) dances
3: (laughs) with pocahontas
0: um holy god yeah, um, but this, I think sometimes the white savior complex isn't just in film. I think it can be seen in other facets, sometimes in, in academia, but I think it's, it's less and less because you have more Native people coming to the table and Native people telling their narrative and their stories.
3: You see it a lot, and I feel like in social media, you yeah. know, kind of Instagram, people going um, to other countries on mission trips or or whatever oh, it yeah. is, and yeah, there's there's kind of a, it's it's really hard and difficult to see it, what their motivations are and if they're genuine or, you know, definitely, it's just, yeah, it's it's crazy.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's been pretty cool just being in like the SCAs They have a, a Native American student reception, and just to like see and meet with other people who are indigenous and also engage in archaeology has just been phenomenal i mean they can totally cut the entire beginning section where you go around a room tell everyone your name and what you do because there's like 80 people in there and that takes like 20 minutes (laughs) but uh overall it's productive yeah
3: well as we're getting towards the end of this uh this this podcast uh first of all you want to thank you for being on emily and have and talking with us but you know because this is called a life in ruins podcast we do have to ask you would you do it again if you had the choice be an anthropologist archaeologist
0: oh gosh Um, (laughs) That's so real though oh gosh you know it's it's phd life like just getting a PhD, also being a native person in academia, there are definitely some days where I'm like, why did I sign up for this? But then I realized (laughs) that, you know what, at the end of the day, no matter what I had gone into, I'd probably be hitting some walls and dealing with shit. So I think I would do it again. I've been to some really cool places and I feel that I'm really giving back to my community and I've met awesome people. And so I, I don't think I, I think I would do it again.
3: Awesome. Well, once again, thank you for being on the podcast. Um, and we just consulted and collaborated with Emily <laughs> Van Alst, who is currently a PhD student at Indiana University Bloomington and a descendant of the Lakota Sioux Nation.
1: And uh, where can our um, listeners see what you're up to? Um, what's your social media? And uh, yeah, just, just give us a little plug. Uh,
0: people can see what I'm up to. I tweet pretty frequently. Um, my handle is Emily Van Awesome. Um, and that's also my Instagram. So those are the two places where I keep people up to date.
2: Well, we'll be sure to put those onto the website here so people can like and subscribe, as it's called. Awesome. As the youth say.
0: <coughs>
3: <laughs> in from the oh, all, and feed That's them a good thing. Yeah. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Yep.
0: Well, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. It was fun.
3: Absolutely.
1: Yeah, this was great. Well, on that note, this has been episode three of a Life in Ruins podcast. Uh, we'll check you all later.
3: Boy.
1: thanks for listening to a life in ruins podcast you can follow us on
2: instagram and facebook at a life in ruins podcast and you can also email us at a life in ruins podcast
1: at gmail.com carlton yes connor
3: what is what is your favorite type of rock art?
1: I don't know, Connor.
3: See me, I'm more of a hard rock art kind of guy. The soft that softer rock art just doesn't really have the staying power of the hard rock art, you know? It just withers away with time.
1: I hate you so much.
3: <laughs> that was rough. <laughs>